0: My name is Tom, and I am an alcoholic, and a drug addict, and a uh, member of Al-Anon. Uh, uh, lots, of, uh, lots of things brought me here, and you'll probably hear about most of them between now and Sunday. I thought being this is a retreat, and we're supposed to be so intently spiritual, uh, I'd start off with something from Scripture, if I can ever find it. That's even true with me in the book. I just don't always know where things are. Here we go. Let's try uh, from the book of Proverbs. Around chapter twenty-three. And it says, Who scream? Who shriek? Who have strife? Who have anxiety? Who have wounds for nothing? who have black eyes. Those who linger long over wine. (laughs) Those who engage in trials of blended wine. Look not on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the glass. It goes down smoothly, but in the end it bites like a serpent. Or a poisonous adder. Your eyes behold strange sights. Your heart utters disordered thoughts. You're like one now lying in the depths of the sea, now sprawled at the top of the mast. They struck me, but it pained me not. They beat me, but I felt it not. When shall I wake up to seek wine once again? And that is the word of the Lord. (laughs) One of the things I like about that is it's clear one of us wrote it. Um, And until alcoholism was at all explained and, and described, that little section from Proverbs was translated into a lot of nonsense. But for... A thousand years BC, it's a rather graphic portrayal of DTs, and they didn't know that. Um, but now we know that. Um, this is my first time at Lake Mead, and um, just for my information, do we have any people for whom this is a first retreat? Hands. Well, welcome, welcome. This, this can be a real scary experience because, uh, you know, you've heard about them, you know, from all these wild-eyed crazy people and you kind of wonder what's going to happen in the course of a weekend. Well, for those of you for whom this is a first time thing, we pretty much all have a list and we're going to try to follow that list. I mean, I think it's in that magic packet. People who put together packets are very organized. I can never do it. Um, but it's, we're going to have uh, times together in here where, where I'm going to talk about different stuff. And, and there's times uh, of eating and times of sleeping. Um, this is not a cult situation where we keep you up for 48 hours and make you sign documents. Um, <laughs> but some people do sleep real badly on retreats. Um, and that just goes across the board, and you should know that some people are so excited on their retreat that they can't sleep, and there are all these people they haven't seen, they want to say hello, and they get very, you know, crazy like that. Um, Now, if that is the way you operate, that's wonderful. Um, Some people, though, I mean, sleep might not be a real easy thing tonight for some people. Some people are just real anxious about retreats because they don't know what they are, or they do know what they are. Um, This is a weekend of real easy, does it? Real easy does it? Some of us practice programs that are very heavy, does it? You know, life is hard, then you die, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and if that's your, your program, uh, I'm not going to affirm that at all this weekend. I think that's an awful way to live. Um, I think th- this is a weekend where with all the different people in here, there's a lot of different reasons. Some people come to these retreats because Um, they haven't heard a new idea in six months. And they come to a retreat because hopefully they will be with some people who say some new things or who talk in some new accents or who bring new experience. And so some people come to retreats because they want something new. They want some content like that. Some people come to retreats because they're exhausted, especially those of us that run the world a lot. Uh, And what we need to do is take some time off. (laughs) What I would suggest for those of us, most of us work, you know, uh, what I would suggest for like the people who haven't slept in a long time, if you can tonight, get to sleep early and sleep in tomorrow morning. Take a big nap in the afternoon, get to sleep early Saturday night, sleep in Sunday morning, and when you go back home Sunday evening, people will be amazed at how wonderful you look. And they will say, where have you been? And you'll say, on a retreat. And it will continue the mythology. But what you did, (laughs) what you did was you let yourself sleep some, you know, which that's wonderful stuff for a lot of us. Some people come here because we need some quiet time and there's plenty of space for quiet time. if you want to be quiet, I would suggest don't sit in this room a lot because this is a room for folks that want to chat. Uh, if you need conversation, you know, the only person you've talked to in the past six months is your sponsor and your sponsor's on your case. You know, come on in here and spend some time with folks that aren't yelling at you a lot. Uh, but if you want quiet and space, there's a lot of territory out there where there's quiet and space and, and, you know, half an hour of that or an hour of that or 20 minutes or a whole afternoon tomorrow, it can be one of the healthiest things you've done in a long time. I recommend that. Um, some people come to retreats um, on a regular basis. And, and being around the program for a while, I find that some of the folks with the happiest sobriety make retreats a regular part of their program. And it is a real attraction, uh, a program of attraction rather than promotion. And if this is a good weekend for you, I hope you feel you know free to be able to continue going back to a lot of retreats. There's a myth in California where I'm from that the uh, um, the healthiest people go on retreats. <laughs> Wrong.
1: Um,
0: I think those of us that go on retreats a lot are those of us that need it a lot and value it a lot. And it's just a real special kind of time. I do think God works overtime a lot on, on weekends like this. So, for newcomers, you know, just stick with us and, and we'll see what happens. This, by the way, is I'm a, a Catholic priest but a A weekend like this is not a secret attempt to turn anybody Catholic, I assure you. We have enough trouble with our own. (laughs) And we do not need a whole slew of crazy people. You know more, coming in complaining about why isn't it like it was last year, who needs that? Um, So, so relax on that. Um, For people for whom this is the nine hundred and third retreat, okay, because some people do become retreat junkies. this retreat will be different. There, will it be better or worse? It'll be different.
1: Uh,
0: the reason it's different is because we're all different from last year. Each one of us is. If, if we've been alive at all, we've gone. Years. I know. There are a couple of places where I'll do a retreat almost on a regular basis every year, every two years I'm there. And so I I become familiar with some of the folks. And some years people come to a retreat in crisis. I mean, the most awful things have happened, you know, just that week. Job crisis, relationship crisis, kid crisis, health crisis. Um, And other years things are just fine. So, I mean, people are different all the time. Anything I'm going to say, I'm sure you've heard before. I mean, I'm not the most creative person. Most of what I talk about are ideas that I've stolen from other people, and they just make a lot of sense to me, so I just snag them and make them my own um, and, and pass them on. And they're free. They're really free. The rule of thumb that I would suggest is this. If anything I say or anybody else says this weekend is helpful, use it. And if it's not helpful, don't use it. I mean that, too. I mean, it's, well, who's to say? You are. You know, because it might work. I go to, I, I do. one of the reasons I went to al I found out I'd be going to movies, watching a movie and saying, George should be here.
1: <laughs>
0: or did Sally understand that scene? Maybe I should explain it to her. You know, because it went by awfully fast. So I would attend a lot of events for other people. And I had to find out that what I was going to do if I had to get well is I had to attend events for me. Um, So we're all here for ourselves. Also, a lot of us live crazy lives. Um, And we come into places like this a little obsessed and a little crazy. I assure you of this, when you return home Sunday evening, all those problems will be there. ...so you don't have to worry about them at all this weekend. (laughs) Just leave them there and plug into now and your 19-year-old will still be awful and 19 when you get home on Sunday. I promise that to you. You can't change him or her, but you can help yourself some. Now, one of the, the truly wise spiritual things I've heard in this program is not to get too hungry, not to get too angry not to get too lonely, and not to get too tired. Most of us are all of those things. Tonight, you know, so one of the things to take care of this weekend is halt. Slowing down some. Eating regularly. Um, Meeting some folks, letting go of some anger. We'll talk about those things in the talk. At the different times I'm scheduled to talk, what I propose to do is wander through the 12 steps as I see them as I've wrestled with them, as I've had any difficulty with them. Um, Mostly, I'm going to talk about my own experience, and you have plenty of seats. Come on in. Don't be shy. (laughs) Or you want to eat by the cook. All right, fine. (laughs) They know. Um, Let me see. Uh, Anyway, but what I'm going to do is talk about very familiar things, Uh, mostly talking about experience. And a couple of insights and a couple of opinions. On all of my opinions, by the way, I'm right. Okay. Now, um, some people, you know, as, as we get involved in, in this world of recovery, and I, I was hearing a, a woman explain the other day how recovery is as progressive as the disease was. And I believe that. I think recovery is a progressive thing. And I think that recovery takes time. And I think that real is slow. I really—I ha- didn't believe that when I came here, I had a little difficulty with speed. Um, and as far as I was concerned, fast was real, you know. And the faster, the more real. And I loved fast, and I loved flashy, and I loved, you know, quick, dramatic, instantaneous changes and as a rule of thumb quick dramatic and instantaneous changes don't last slow is real and it takes time to get well and it takes time to recover and it takes time to learn how to laugh again and learn how to cry again and learn how to love again but a lot of us, with our little obsessions, we're on this time schedule, you know. I mean, I'm six months sober. I shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z by now, you know. This is fostered by if you go and say, I'm suicidal. They say, how sober are you? I'd say, nine months, they'd say, you're right on schedule. <laughs> <laughs> on what schedule? You know, where is that in the book? Well, it's nowhere in the book. Um, some people seem to get well real fast. and I'm a slow getter weller. I I, I believe in slow. There's one character in California who says that um, your first year of sobriety is when everything physical gets taken care of, and your second year of sobriety is when the emotional gets taken care of, and your third year of sobriety is when your spiritual things get settled. Well, that might be true if you're real, real fast. But for a lot of us, it takes a year or two to get physical things back in place. And two or three years to get emotions at all back into normal. And maybe two or three years to get spirituality put into perspective. I'm of the opinion that if you're five years sober, you're in early sobriety. I really believe that. Um, I'm almost nine years sober, and I think I'm in early sobriety. You know, I really do. And because the the problem is when I start saying, how many days do you have? We start comparing a lot. And we start doing mine is bigger than yours which happens in some areas probably not in nevada but it does happen and uh, it's just real difficult to focus in on the fact that different people have different rates and it takes time and slow is real and what exists is today that's what's real some anthropologists off in new zealand australia were doing a big study of the aborigines and the Aborigines by the Australians, are called abos. And and they, these, very, um, these people were nomads and lived very close to the earth and lived in, in areas of incredible desert. And so moisture and water were big issues and food supply was limited. And, and they, they lived real close to the land. And anthropologists would watch them. And they would notice this whole tribe of abos would be going along and all of a sudden just stop. Not sit down, not take a bathroom break, not uh, make camp. they just stop. Then, for no apparent reason, they'd start going again and walk on for a while more than they might stop again. Go on again. And this pattern drove the uh, uh, anthropologists crazy because they were trying to figure out what's the pattern. What are they doing? What are these people doing? And finally, after watching this for months and months and months, trying to figure out what's going on, they approached one of the old wise people of the tribe and they said, what are you doing? We see you stop and you're traveling along and things are fine and for no apparent reason you stop and just stand still. What's going on? And the old man looked at the anthropologist as if he were talking to a child and said, we stop so that our souls may catch up with us. Now that's something lots of us need to hear because we're busy already figuring out what's going to happen Sunday night when I go home to the 19-year-old, you know. Stopping so souls can catch up with us is an important part of being sober. Slowing down, getting in touch. When well, I found out when I stopped alcohol and uh, other things that I could stay just as crazy by staying real busy all the time. And I developed a little problem with workaholism, which I'll talk about. And I, my workaholism is that I'm always busy, but don't get much done. But I'm always busy. <laughs> and I found if I'm doing that all the time, it ensures the fact that I'm not going to be feeling very much. And a lot of getting well has to do with a lot of feelings. The first step of recovery in my book says that... Um, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I was a couple of months sober before I asked anybody to be my sponsor. I didn't, I didn't understand the rules here at all. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes we figure that people figure this out real fast. I mean, how the program works and how meetings run. And, and I really didn't. I'm a slow study. Um, But I'd go to meetings and people would do this razzmatazz about sponsors. you got to have a sponsor. you got to have a sponsor. And I didn't know why. Um, But I finally, at three or four months sober, asked a fella to be my sponsor. And he was a Vietnam vet and he was a couple of years younger than I was. And what we did as sponsor or sponsee was we would hang out together. That's basically what it came down to. And when I felt exceptionally awful, I would say, James, I feel exceptionally awful, and he would say, what step are you working? Now, that, I mean, that was the relationship for a year, you know, whatsoever. but we would, I, I would, I said, I don't know what step I'm working, I don't understand the steps, uh, and my problem with the steps was that they were all English words, but it made no difference. I... Uh, so, James would say, read the first step to yourself, and I said, all right, Okay. He says, now what does it say? And I says, well, this step says that I was powerless over alcohol, and that my life had become unmanageable. he said, wrong. He said, read the first step. What's it say? I was powerless over alcohol, and my life had become unmanageable. He said, wrong. Well, he did that for a long enough time to make me feel very angry and very stupid. And I was saying, What's the, what are you trying to do? And he says, read it out loud. And I said, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And he said, exactly, we. Not I. We. He said a very significant word in the 12 steps, and a word that a lot of us skip over because we don't bother to notice, is the word we. Because I alone, isolated, am hopeless. But we together have hope. And it's a real important thing to be conscious of the fact that in getting well, we're joining a group. In some sense, we're joining a group. You cannot get well alone. I believe that. Well, I want to be independent, you know, all that stuff. Uh, A woman named Blanche explained it like this. She said, babies are dependent. They really are. Adolescents are Are independent. That's why they're so wonderful to live with. (laughs) (laughs) But adults, adults are interdependent. Adults give and take. And that's why it's a whole new world to most of us, because we're stuck in being 15. Independent, leave me alone, me first, out of my way. Don't tell me what to do, I'm fine. That's what 15-year-olds do. But learning how to be an adult means learning how to give and learning how to take and learning how to change and learning how to contribute and learn... It's no longer me first, it's my turn. That's a new world to a lot of us, being able to take our turns. One of the first spiritual awakenings I had in this program took place in Berkeley when I was about nine months sober. I went into a meeting on our, our Berkeley Wednesday night group and I was sitting, they read the fifth chapter and all that stuff, you know, and, and I was waiting for the meeting to get started. And I looked around the room and suddenly noticed that I was not the only person in the room.
1: <laughs>
0: now this is six, seven, eight, nine months sober and I, I was floored. I am not the only person in we. I, I'm, my arrogance is the arrogance of saying, uh, if you really knew who I was, you would nicely ask me to leave. Hopefully nicely. Uh, I never felt like I belonged. I never felt worthy. I never felt whole. I never felt complete. I, re- I mean, I was always very inadequate and embarrassed to be me. And that if you knew me, you would say, please leave. I mean, this is a nice joint, you know. What occurred to me in that room once I noticed there were other women and men in the room my logical mind said Tom, everybody in this room has a right to be here you're in this room you've got a right to be here too it was belonging that finally started to happen after six or seven or eight or nine months starting to feel like I belong. I came in very isolated. Um, my drinking store, I don't have a horror story drinking. I really wish I did. I, uh, I've heard people share about where they've been after a couple of social drinks, and it's most amazing. I, um, we had the, the shortest and most horrifying qualification I ever heard was a longshoreman in San Francisco named Frank. All longshoremen are named Frank and he said my name is Frank and I'm an alcoholic and I drank till I killed a man does anyone have a topic
1: <laughs>
0: well I'm impressed you know um, I I never got a drunk driving ticket ever I never spent a night in jail uh, I never was fired from a job because of drinking I never was thrown out of a house because of drinking. I never even got a tattoo, you know. I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of required things that I just I just never got around to do. Um, so that was, but what happened to me was that I was becoming increasingly non-functional. The story of my drinking is a story of depression. Um, all of my 20s, I was very depressed. Manic depressive frequently. I was able to function, but it cost me more and more to function. And I ended my drinking. I was um, in the end of my second, excuse me, my second year of theology at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. Uh, I lived on the second floor of a building, and I stayed on the floor as much as I could because you can't fall easily. <laughs> Although you still can, you know, you get rug burns and can't remember how that happened because you were lying on the floor to start with. I, uh, I had the curtains pulled. I'm always, I feel very warm and secure with full curtains. And the reason I had the curtains pulled was because they were out there. Now, if you don't know who they are, you're not ready for the program yet. <laughs> They are the ones who would follow me across campus, never during the daytime, usually at night. Um, They would listen in on the phone. Again, not always, but regularly. Uh, What else would they do? Oh, they. um, there's a stretch of road called Highway 17, which is between uh, Berkeley and the Oakland Airport. And, And I would be on that, bringing people to the airport or picking them up or something. And all of a sudden I'd be driving along in the evening and suddenly become aware of the fact that someone was in the back seat. A threatening someone was in the back seat. It wasn't like, you know, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. This was an, an axe murderer was in the back seat. And I could hear them breathing and I would turn the mirror just so I could see who they were and they'd duck, you know? would pull off the road very fast, um, and I would stop in, like, Way parking lots and jump out of the car and look in the back seat to see who was there, and they would have gotten out somehow. Well, people get very nervous in the neighborhood when you do that a lot, you know, and I was doing that a lot. Um, I also found, uh, I guess politely we call this personal hygiene. Uh, theoretically, I was all for showers. I just couldn't do much about them, however. Um, I was exhausted. I was burned out. I was very depressed. And I found the thought of um, picking up a towel and a bar of soap in the bathroom And, a and w- this was the door that you pulled on and you opened it and went out and locked it behind you because who knows, you know, you're in Berkeley. And... We walk walk down to the shower, and then you push that door open, and you put the towel and take the robe off, and get the water just right, and go in and wash everything with soap, and then rinse off everything without the soap, drying, putting the towel back on you, and back to your room. That was an exhausting process for me, so I just stopped doing it. Um, And I, and washing clothes, who had time? I mean, this was one of those other little bourgeois things, you know, that I didn't want to get involved with anymore, so I didn't. Um, And food became a big issue. Again, I was all for food, but I just couldn't do it. Um, A woman in the neighborhood cooked a lamb curry, and lamb curry has a way of staying in the air. And I'd walk by her house and throw up and reached the conclusion that I was allergic to lamb curry. Never occurred to me that alcohol may be involved with it. And and just what was possible with my body was there were only two things that would stay down. One was tomato soup. And the nice thing about tomato soup was you did not have to take it out of the can to eat it. And the second thing was hot dogs. Uh, and we had a little place down the road where you can go and buy a hot dog. So for the last six months of my drinking, what stayed, and of course in a dick, was tomato soup and hot dogs. And then, of course, I had to have alcohol, caffeine, and nicotine. Those were the things I needed to survive. But the food which I ate is kind of a, you know, to please my mother, um, that would stay. Now, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't have a lot of suicidal thoughts. Suicide was not big on my agenda. When I was much younger in college, I thought of suicide. Who doesn't in college? I thought that was a very normal response to the situation. And I can remember some nights things would be so crazy, and of course I would have had a couple of beers and smoked a couple of joints. Life would be so crazy, and I'd just be wound up and couldn't get to sleep, and I'd be panicky and pacing back and forth at the age of 21, 22, 23. And I'd suddenly realize that in the house we had enough sleeping pills where I could kill myself, and all of a sudden I would relax and go to bed. (laughs) Knowing that they were there was really helpful. Um, But my problem by the time I was... All of 29, and and at this stage of my alcoholism, where I wasn't functioning real well, um, suicide was not the thing. For me, the thing was insanity. The book I was reading was called, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. This is a book about a young woman who is nuts. And what happens is, when she's much younger, life is kind of awful. And she develops a fantasy world that's wonderful and filled with imaginary people. And when life got awful, she'd go visit her fantasy world. Now, a lot of us do that. Uh, The difference was that her fantasy world became very real to her. And all of a sudden, she didn't have control anymore about when she went and when she left. She would just go. And then the fantasy world became a nightmare world where instead of it being a place of wonder and light, it was a place of awfulness and threat, and she couldn't break out of it. Anyway, at one point in the book, um, as as she's learning, the doctor, who's a wonderful woman, is her therapist, and her doctor says, oh, you're feeling uncomfortable, don't run from it, it's okay to be uncomfortable, have we heard those words before? And uh, the little girl was saying, well, I, I, I don't like being uncomfortable, I don't like the pain, I don't like these feelings. And the shrink said, I never promised you a rose garden. I promised you won't have to live in that crazy world anymore. (laughs) Well, shortly after that, the young woman discovers that sanity is a choice. And so is insanity a choice. And when I was reading that book on the floor of my room in summer of 1976, I really understood that, that I had a choice that I could just flip out. And the way it was, I envisioned it like this. I would go to my room and sit in my chair and start rocking back and forth. And in a couple of days, they'd come to find me. And I'd be rocking back and forth. And they'd say, Tom, and Tom wouldn't be home. (laughs) (laughs) And they'd take me to a place where I could rock back and forth for a long time. And they'd take me for walks and feed me. And then in about 20, 25, 30 years, I'd come back to see if anything had gotten better. And if it hadn't gotten better, I was going to stay gone. Boom. Now, at the age of 29, to me, that seemed like a remarkably attractive option to the way I was living my life. And I I went into men that I had lived with for some time, members of my community that I'd known since I was 18 years old, uh, a couple of them started going to Al-Anon, because they began finding out that when I said, good Lord, I don't remember that, I wasn't lying. And it took them years to figure that I wasn't lying out. And anyway, they, started t- they were very concerned about me, and they learned all of those Al-Anon tricks
1: uh,
0: that they, they teach in the secret Al-Anon sessions. Um, <laughs> One evening, a a friend of mine and I had gone out, and we went to uh, uh, visit a former student named Charlie, as a matter of fact, in Berkeley. And Charlie brought out a bottle of vodka, and Charlie doesn't drink because both of his parents were on the program. I didn't know that. Um, My buddy had a drink, and I drank the bottle, which was the normal way of doing things. And I was hilarious and charming and amusing, and then got out on the street, went into a blackout, and came out of it five hours later... Feeling vaguely uncomfortable. Um, And and so, but I was in my room, and I uh, called my buddy the next morning, and I said, uh, Hey, what happened last night? Now, if he was into my disease, as much as he had been for years, what he would have said was, Tom, last night, you were an asshole. Period. And I was expecting that, and that I can deal with. Yes, I know, I I'll never do it again. Instead, he said, Why don't you drop by? I said, okay. So walked over to his house, had a cup of coffee and a cigarette, of course, which you need, and he said, uh, I said, what happened last night? And he said, well, at 8 o'clock, he said, how far back do you remember? Unfair question. And I said, well, I remember being hilarious about X, Y, and he said, oh, well, let me tell you what I saw. At 7 o'clock, this was happening. At 7.15, you started doing X. At 7.30, Y began. At 8 o'clock, this went on, at 9.15, that happened. At 10 o'clock, you were on Telegraph Avenue screaming you were going to kill your superior. (laughs) At 10.15, the Berkeley police attempted to arrest you. You know, and he was just going, you have to be going out of your way to be arrested by the Berkeley police, I assure you. (laughs) And he just ran this whole thing down. Now, the way I say it was an al on trick he he did not lecture or scream. He just told me what happened. He was just giving, it, it was like he had been taking notes. And he had. Boom, 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 boom. Well, by the time he got to a, the time I was ready to streak the campus, this was, we were streaking at that time,
1: um,
0: I, uh, I was very, very much afraid and I, I, I reached this conclusion. I can no longer drink with my friends. <laughs> because they'll remember this stuff. You know? And anyway. That was that was the beginning of the summer. By the end of the summer, uh, I was intervened on, and I was put into a, a 21-day treatment program. Um, and I also, this treatment program was very heavily oriented to eating and AA. If you eat more than you have, you know, that will help, and, and go to AA. So I went to my first meeting as an Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, the first time I went to an AA meeting actually was like in 1970 or 71, up in a little town called Nesphelum, Washington, which is a little Indian village where the Nez Perce and the Colville tribes live, and they had a little AA meeting there, and I went, because I used to hang out in that area, and I was bored, and um, I was, what, 20, 21, 22. I was real impressed with you people. You talked about feelings, and I had never talked about feelings, and you talked about Um, you know, real things, and I was very impressed and said nothing to you because I wasn't done yet. The second time I came to see you was in August of 1976, and I was done. Uh, My first day without a drink is a Wednesday. Uh, How do we remember these things so clearly? It was a Wednesday in the middle of August during the Republican National Convention of 1976. Gerald Ford had just been nominated for president. Remember him? And uh, I was, you know, like, what happened to Nixon? You know? uh, I was busy there for a while, you know. I missed the resignation. I mean, anyway, um, I went to a Friday night meeting in Oakland, which is the next town from, from Berkeley. And I I called the AA Central Office that Wednesday. I mean, I I knew I had to stop drinking, and I I smoked a little dope, but I had to, you know, that day. And I called the AA Central Office, and I said, uh, is there a meeting of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous anywhere in the Bay Area this weekend? Because I knew nothing about you. I didn't know you had a zillion meetings, you know. Uh, And they said, yes, there was. I'm real glad, by the way, that there was someone there who answered the phone. Um, and she didn't say, who was this call for? She just, because I don't know my friend, familiar, uh, she just gave the information that I asked for. I wanted where there was a meeting, when there was a meeting, and, and do I just show up? And she gave me the response. A couple years after that, by the way, I, I was working in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, and I was going to be there for the summer. And I landed, and and the first thing where I go to a new town is I usually call the AA central office and find out where there's a meeting. And I call the uh, uh, central office in in Stockholm on like a Tuesday afternoon and got a tape in Swedish, mind you. And I had to play it a couple of times because my Swedish was not that good. But the tape said, hi there, this is your AA central office. And we are usually open from Mondays. Uh, 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 We are usually open on Mondays from 4 until 6. This is Tuesday. How do I get from Tuesday? I had no idea where a meeting was. I was just horrified because there was no one to answer the phone, but they did. I bumped into folks and did make a meeting that night uh, through God's grace, but it was, I was I was thrilled that there was someone there to answer the phone when I called. I, I think service very frequently is very easy and very simple. And people who answer phones at central offices do an incredible amount of service. Because it was my first contact for me was that woman on the phone. I never got her name. I don't know if she was older, or younger, or blacker, or whiter, or gayer, or straighter, fatter, and All I know is she was a voice on the phone that told me where there was a meeting. And I'm very grateful to her, whoever she is. Um, and so I, I got through Wednesday and I got through Thursday. And Friday morning I drove over to... The meeting to find out where it was, and I—it's a guy I hate being late—and uh, went back home and waited, you know, and then went to the meeting, and it was an old-timers meeting. Now I was 29 years old. Twenty-nine, and I was very obsessed with age. I thought I was the youngest person in the history of the world that had to get sober. Okay. And I thought it was very unfair and very ugly, and I was willing to stop drinking when I was 65, but how can they call me up short when I have 40 glorious years of drinking ahead of me? Awful. So uh, I walked into this meeting, and it was a tiny little meeting, 12, 18 people, somewhere in there. You know how those numbers merge? Um, And I sat down at the table because I didn't know you could sit in the back. And I I grinned. (laughs) What I have discovered is if you don't want people to talk to you, bring a book. And most people don't bother you at all if you're reading, even if it's upside down, unless God has just talked to them that morning. Then you're never going to get them to shut up. Uh, You know, they want to tell you about it. (laughs) So I... I forgot my book, and what I discovered, though, was when you don't have a book and you don't want people to talk to you, grin. Because they'll think you're on
1: <laughs>
0: And just nod a little, and they're fine. So I nodded and grinned, and the meeting started. And this old-timer, uh, little tiny white Tom Dewey mustache, the people in this room, I, my hair was a lot longer, I to. The people in this room all were short-haired, they all were clean-shaven. Most of them wore polyester. Um, most of them had socks on. And most, including the women, wore tattoos. This was your AA meeting, you know, real AA. So I just sat there grinning, and this old-timer, uh, who was a billion years old, said that we all knew his story, and he would not bonus with it. <laughs> And everyone in that room burst into a laughter. They were laughing and screaming. I laughed too. I didn't know what he was talking about, but what was clear to me was if you want to survive, survivors, survivors, one way you survive is by fitting in. Do not look like you don't belong. (laughs) Do not look like you don't understand. You know, they think it's funny. I think it's funny. But what my head was saying was, and this happens a lot, I'm talking, my head is working, you know. Uh, My head was saying, Tom, you should have been here last week when he told his story. (laughs) (laughs) And you've always been like this. You have always been late for the crucial class, you know. When the term paper assignments were given, you were out. Uh, When the rules of the game were explained, you were in the bathroom. So what I have done for years is play catch-up. And that's what I was going to do. It's act like you know what you're doing. The antennae are way out to here, so you're picking up everything, and you'll find out how to act and get out of the room alive. And that's how get out alive is real good. All right. There was a guy there talking next, and he said that he had a real good week. I think the theme, the, the topic was, how was your week, was one of those meetings. Um, and he said that he had had such a good week that that afternoon he kept the front lawn. I did not want what he had.
1: <laughs> I, I, now, I mean, I am
0: I'm very impressed with anybody who can do yard work and the laundry in the same week. And if you can do that, I think you're heroic. Because uh, it's very difficult. Anyway, I was not impressed then. There was a married couple at this meeting, uh, male-female. And... Uh, <laughs> They were married to each other. You know? And they were talking to each other. And touching each other affectionately. I haven't seen that in years. And I thought that was the most bizarre thing I had seen. That, you know, where do these people come from? You know? And then it was my turn to talk. Well, I said... Uh, my name is Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. And they said,
1: Hi, Tom!
0: <laughs> it takes a long time to get used to that.
1: It really does.
0: Uh, I think it was months before I, I, I just took it like a blow. It was all this shouting and group participation. I, it reminded me of a movie called The Rocky Horror Picture Show. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it, it, it's exactly like Berkeley AA, if, if you ever do see it. You know, people wear costumes and act out. All right. Um, I told this group of people with whom I had nothing in common. I mean, I was younger by them all by 30 years, and, you know, the, the sock issue was a big issue. Um, I, I uh, said that I hadn't had a drink since a Tuesday night, which was true. And, and my last drink was beer, which isn't alcohol, as we all know. And it was two pitchers of beer. And I did not, I did not get drunk. I mean, if I knew that was going to be my last drink, I would have done it differently. You know, with, you know, the bottle in a motel room, you know, and i a... but it, it was just awful. I just went to the bathroom a lot. Um, when I told this ancient, short-haired clean-shaven sock-wearing tattooed group of women and men that I hadn't had a drink since Tuesday night they burst into applause
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and that never happened to me before but that really nonplussed me as we say because uh, I mean, when dealing with people out on planet Earth, and you say, you know, I haven't had a drink in a month. They don't clap. They um, look embarrassed. Or they change the subject. Or they ask the children to leave the room. (laughs) These people applaud... And I got a lot of that, you know. These people applauded because they knew what it meant to not have a drink since Tuesday night. And I never met anybody like that before. It was at that moment that I felt hope. Um, I was not real glad to be there, though, for a long time. I want to make that real clear. uh, Like, sometimes with newcomers, you know, we'll we'll do that. There was a meeting I went to for years in Los Angeles. I, I was sober in L.A. for four years. Um... And L. A. has its own distinctive style um, of doing anything, as you know. Anyway, there was a meeting called Hollywood Saturday Night. Where, yeah, everyone wore dark glasses and called it the Darling. <laughs> uh, but there were like 300 people in the room, and it was a real well-lit room. I mean, there's some AA meetings can be divided into two groups. One have the one light bulb hanging from the ceiling, and it's dark and murky and filled with cigarette smoke. The other is brilliantly lit, filled with cigarette smoke. All right, those are your two kinds of... This was the brilliantly lit type, and there were 300 people, everyone upbeat, and it was just tremendous energy, and, and they would start the meeting reading the fifth chapter. Then they would say, turn to the people next to you and say hello, very upbeat. <laughs> I hated it. Um,
1: and I
0: I was at this meeting, and they said, do we have it? Are there any newcomers among us? Would you like to raise your hand? And you saw these women and men holding onto the chair with one hand and having the other one being shoved up by their sponsor, you know. Uh, then the chair would say, would you like to stand up and give us your name? The answer is no, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky to be in the room, and you want me to... Talk to the group uh, and use that word. <laughs> awful. So I, I, I was not happy for a long time to be a footnote on that. I started hearing the people who were grateful alcoholics or happy alcoholics. We had a guy in L.A. Skid Row. His name was Charlie, and he says, "My name is Lucky. Char- My name is Charlie. I'm a lucky alcoholic." You know. So we always called him Lucky Charlie. Well, I that to me sounded schlocky. It sounded insincere. It sounded... It it sure wasn't this. I mean, what grateful alcoholic was not me. I was over three years, I guess, and I was in a meeting in the San Fernando Valley, which is like visiting 1953. (laughs) And this guy on the podium, (laughs) early 1953, March, this guy on the podium said, you know, I'm not grateful that I'm an alcoholic, but I'm real grateful you are. And that, bong, that was true for me. That my first gratitude around being an alcoholic was that you were. Um, And then it kind of spread to where now I'm I'm very peaceful with it. But I, I do not have a quick romance with AA. I, I talked about that first meeting feeling hopeful. What's important for you to realize is hopeful is not my favorite feeling. I was not home at my first meeting. Um, hopeful for me, I have to explain, um, pardon me for getting a little denominational this evening, but it comes part from, from being raised Roman Catholic, and it has to do with the afterlife. Okay. Now, we were told, as small children, That if you were extraordinarily good and died, you went directly to heaven. And that consisted of Jesus and His mother. That's who that happened to. (laughs) If, on the other hand, you were awful, dreadful, loathsome, disgusting, to the max, when you died, you did not pass go, you did not collect $200, you went directly to hell. Now, the question, therefore, is what about the ninety-seven percent of us in the middle? See? Who have good days and bad days, you know? Who have some weaknesses and some strengths, and you know what I mean it's the vast majority. Where do we go? Well, there was a place called Purgatory. Okay. Ah, this is the familiar word over so here. All right, now. Purgatory is where you go. Um, to get cleansed, to get purged, to get cleaned up so you can enter heaven. Okay, now, what's the difference between hell and purgatory? Well, they would say hell is a place of fire and brimstone and pain and anguish and loathsomeness and misery that goes on forever. Purgatory, on the other hand, is a place of fire and brimstone and anguish and misery and loathsomeness that only goes on for a hundred billion years. (laughs) Therefore, in Purgatory, there is hope. (laughs) (laughs) And the
1: hope is this,
0: even though this is awful. In a hundred billion years, I'll get out. That's what hope... And hope has always meant that to me. Hope is not, oh, I'm so hopeful. Hope is, in a hundred billion years, I'll get out. That's what it means for me. So at my first meeting, I was hopeful, but not happy. You know, you understand the problem that I come... All right. Um, Now, what was I hopeful for? Because I think you need to be concretely hopeful about stuff. At that meeting... My hope was this. It was vivid. Looking back, it was just clear to me, you know, that as they more is revealed and, and you suddenly notice what was going on, you didn't notice it when the next, alright. In that, when, or Friday in August of 1976, at that old timers meeting, I was hopeful that if I went to these meetings forever, And never had another drink, or joint, or pill, for as long as I lived. And I was going to live to be real.
1: <laughs> if
0: I did all that, what I was hopeful for was that it won't get any worse. And in August of 76, that seemed like a bargain. I mean, I was willing to... I knew I'd never laugh again. I knew I'd never trust anybody again. I I knew I'd never feel well again. And I knew I'd never feel energy again. I mean, I was a very depressed, burned out, exhausted person when I came here. Um, oh. six months later <laughs> I was taking a class in the theology of hope and, um, at the Theological Union and we read books and most of the books were by German, German theologians and when you read a lot of German theologians you find out that one of their big issues is um, why did we lose the Second World War? <laughs> That's a big issue for German theologians.
1: Anyway, uh,
0: we had to concretely share something hopeful. I remember this viv- it was a, we, we, we would meet in my room, as a matter. There were five of us, it was a seminar. And at six months clean and sober, what I shared is my concrete hope was this: Right now, I'm hopeful that I could die without being institutionalized. And I thought that was sensational. And the other five people in the room were horrified.
1: <laughs>
0: Just horrified. Yeah. Um, and it occurred to me—I mean, I couldn't—I I didn't try to explain a lot, and I'm glad that I had that presence of mind, because these were Earth people. These people <laughs> didn't know the magic, the magic of getting through any given. 24-hour period without having to drink or fix or pee on yourself. <laughs> they didn't know. And I remember going back to my home group and telling them about, about my, my change in hope that I thought I could, I'm pretty sure I could now die without being institutionalized, and they clapped. <laughs> it's real different. One of the reasons um, I go to meetings is because people understand, and, you, and they're not easily horrified. Uh, where some folks out on the planet panic easily, you know, that, okay.
1: Um,
0: it's, it's nine o'clock, um, I'd like to end in about four minutes, just so you can, you know, plan your whatever you're going to do in four minutes. <laughs> but I'd like to mention this. Um, sometimes, I, I, tomorrow morning, I, I want to talk about God, and I want to talk about spirituality a lot. Not that, that by a lot, I don't mean, you know, for four hours. I mean, there are some ideas I want to say about that, because I think there are important things to say about both of those topics. Um, but, but being, about being a spiritual person. The book says the spiritual life is not a theory. It has to be very practical. And I'm of the school of thought that says spiritual things are very practical and very simple. Spiritual things are not having great insights. My best insights occurred after a couple of social drinks. I do not need insights. Insights are not my problem. My problem is action and living. And therefore, spirituality has to be concerned with the way I act and the way I live. And not the way I act by myself, alone in my room. That's Nothing gets worked out alone in your room. Have you noticed that yet? You know, let's run it through one more time. If I start, let me figure it out again, alone in my room. It doesn't work. What spirituality concerns is my relationship with other people and with my higher power and with myself. It is relational. It is relational. And a healthy spirituality connects me to the world. It connects me to my community. It connects me to my sisters and brothers. It's not something that divides. It's something that connects. But a lot of us start hearing all this spiritual talk, and we figure we have to get holy real fast. So what does that mean? Well, Monday I stop drinking, and Tuesday I stop dope. And Wednesday, no more sugar for me. Mm Mm-mm, not me. Thursday, throw away the cigarettes. Friday, start jogging just a little. Saturday, you're looking at the want ads for marathons. You know, where can I run for a marathon? On Monday, you're on the microbiotic diet. And on Tuesday, you're drunk again. And you can't figure out what happened? You know, I was going so good. You know. uh, well, uh, let me tell you what happened. Thomas Aquinas is a 13th century Dominican and compulsive overeater who was so huge that they had to cut a place for him out in the table so he could move up a little closer just to nosh. Okay, that's Thomas Aquinas. But Aquinas was a brilliant man and a, a good, a genuinely good human being. And one of the bumper stickers he came up with was this. He said, pray that you don't run faster than God's grace. And I think lots of us need to hear that on a regular basis. Not to run faster than God's grace. So, we're sober and we're going to do a retreat and now we're going to get real spiritual. Where are all the spiritual books? Why don't I start reading the Bible with Genesis? Well... My suggestion on that is this. If, if you think you, you should read the Bible to get well, start it when you're around five years sober. Five years of good sobriety with a sponsor who does not put up with bullshit. Then you can start to do that. And there are libraries filled with spiritual books, and lots of them are good. Some of them are not. But lots of them are good. When should I start reading all of those? After five years of sobriety, if you've got a good sponsor who doesn't put up with bullshit. Well, what should I do between now and five years? (laughs) This book is called Alcoholics (laughs) (laughs) Anonymous. I'm not someone who reads it all the time. I'm really not. I don't I don't have, you know, every day I read a chapter. I, if I was that disciplined, you know, I'd, I'd be governor of California. <laughs> I, I just can't do that. Uh, but what I do is I regularly read it, which means a couple of times a month or a couple of times a year or a couple of times a day, but regularly. And I kind of find that it regularly changes, and I stick notes in here. <laughs> And I cross things out that I don't like, and then I have to write them back into that. I, I mean, this book is something I have to get real familiar with. Everything in here is reaffirmed by any spiritual book that's healthy. You know, so reading this means you're not... But it, it speaks a language we use. And it talks about our experience. And it's real practical. And you don't have to rush. We're going to be alive for a long time. And we have lots of time to read lots of things. And I really am a believer in using basic literature to get a basic program of how to meditate, how to pray, how to live a life in connection with other people. Um, I'm going to use both uh, um, the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures uh, because I'm, I'm familiar with some of them, and I find that they illustrate points I want to make um, a lot, and I hope that doesn't offend anybody. Uh, again, if it helps, use it. If it doesn't help, you know, ignore it. Um, and I'm, I'm also going to make references to the book, um, because I find that the book is an inspired work. And it's not written pretty. And I like that. I really do. So there... Um, some folks may want to chat with me tomorrow, uh, tonight, I'd basically like to go to my room and pass out, but, um, tomorrow I'll have a sign-up list for folks who might like just want to chat. well, what do you talk about to a priest? Whatever you want. Um, say hello, you know, if it's been a while since you've seen one of us, um, if you are raised, uh, a good Baptist and think we have horns, you might want to check that out, you know, really it's not there. Um. If, if you want to do a fifth step, I'm available for that. Um, if you just want to, you know, share something that you don't feel comfortable sharing at your home group, you know, because they lynched the last one who shared that. Don't you love that? Tell the truth at these meetings, but don't say that. You know. Um, anyway, I'll be available for any of that. Or if you just want to talk about the weather, I'm good on weather. I really am. So. I'll I'll make it 20-minute slots. And 20 minutes isn't a lot of time, but it is still a certain amount of time that we can use. And I'll be available in the morning and the afternoon and and tomorrow evening and sometime on Sunday. And I'll probably have that over by the the table as we go in just so you can sign up tomorrow. Okay? Any questions or insights or... (laughs) Did I offend anybody? (laughs) If I haven't, you haven't been listening, you know. (laughs) Okay, why don't we end in the usual fashion?